Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today's topic will be Clark Ashton Smith. But before we get into that, it's about a week since we last attended Concrete Cow, the local gaming convention in Milton Keynes, and uh, we all had a good time there. So what did you do at Concrete Cow, Matt? Uh, it was a week uh, ago, Matt's yeah. forgotten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask that question of Scott while Matt considers. <laughs> so what did you get up to, Scott? Well, in the morning I played uh, a game of Itris B, which I've wanted to play for some time. Of it, what? Itris B. Or Itris, Itris B. Or maybe Itris B. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce okay. it. It's not a real word, so I imagine there's some latitude there. But um, Itris B or Itris B or Itris whatever. It's a, um, a story game... Uh, that is set in the 1920s in Europe and is fundamentally about surrealism. And in this particular case, the uh, the GM, uh, Matthew, who ran it, set up his own scenario, I guess, a situation, premise, whatever you want to call it, um, where we were people going off into this dream research station to work out what had gone wrong there with the people who had been investigating dreams on the outskirts of the city of Idris B. And it all went very Solaris, only more so. And it was great fun. It was surrealist. Did a fish do it? No, not in this case. I feel like I've missed a trick there. Yeah, it was largely fish-free. But that's because you weren't at the game, Paul. When a track fish went wrong. Oh, well. (laughs) And in the afternoon, I ran uh, my Cold War Cthulhu uh, game, uh, which at the moment is called The Forcing Move. I don't know if I'm going to change it before publication. But it's the one that's set in uh, the World Chess Championships in 1972 in Reykjavik and is all about Bobby Fischer going mad. Oh, fantastic. A Call of Cthulhu game that takes place during a chess game. Yep. (laughs) Sounds quite intriguing. Okay. (laughs) It's like Inception. It's a game within a game. And you, Matt? Yeah, I finally remember now. I'm slowly waking up after two cups of coffee. Um, In the morning, I ran one of the vignettes that we put together for The Poison Tree, um, set in 1890s South Africa around the Witswaterstring Gold Rush. Uh, that's uh, that's gone very differently every time I've run it. So this uh, this time the uh, the PCs had a bit more of a yeah interesting situation to deal with. Now <laughs> set in, in a gold rush. <laughs> Does anybody set some dynamite off? No, no dynamite. No, no, no dynamite. No dynamite. You're doing this wrong, Matt. You're doing this in wrong. Fact, I, th- I think actually every time I've run it, dynamite has not come into the scenario. And oh, no, correction. Once, <laughs> once it happened. Okay, once. <laughs> no. I forgot they went around the yeah the blowing tents up with it of all things tents with dynamite. Okay, but that seems like overkill. Yeah, when you play it, you'll find out why. <laughs> you can never have too much dynamite. Okay, and in the afternoon, around the game that I originally ran up at the Gateshead event, the uh, the seventh edition launch party, so with more Poe than you can shake a stick at. Well, I was late to the event and I joined in in the Saturday, on the Saturday afternoon with a game of Secret Hitler. With our good friend Mike Mason. So, so which one of you was Hitler in the end? That's a secret. Uh, let me see now. I I don't... Oh, Mike was in the second game. Right. Yes, yes. And uh, our friend Richard was, was Hitler in the first game. So for those who don't know, Secret Hitler is a new game from the people who bought you Cards Against Humanity, which uh, I'm sure you've all heard of. 
I was expecting after Cards Against Humanity a a more transgressive, cruder game than than this turned out to be. So in Secret Hitler, part of the premise is that you are either fascists or liberals. You're trying to get policies passed and they're either fascist policies or liberal policies. Now, I thought that those would be you know, thinking back to Cards Against Humanity, I thought those would be really objectionable um, pieces of text that you'd be putting forth that would be kind of funny or, or, or whatever. Um, but no, they are just pieces of card that says liberal policy or fascist policy. Uh, and obviously you can bring your own colour to that, but that's not really what it's about. So it's more like a game of Werewolves of Miller's Hollow, uh, the game in which you're, you know, you're trying to sort out who the werewolf is, but with very little to go on. And there's more kind of strategy involved. So you can actually start to deduce, based on gameplay, who you think the liberals are and who you think the fascists are. Well, thank God modern politics has moved past all this crypto-fascist nonsense. (laughs) Indeed, Scott. Indeed. That wouldn't happen now. But it was a lot of fun and I look forward to playing it again. We only had five players, so that was kind of the bare minimum you can play it with. I look forward to playing it with a group of like seven or eight um, because that way Hitler won't get to know who the fascists are, which I think would make it more interesting. But anyway, we all had a marvellous time at Concrete Cow. Uh, Thank you very much to everyone who went. And thank you especially to Amy Hewitt, who took over the running of Concrete Cow this time. Uh, Neil Smith has been running it for the last 10 years. It really has been going for that long. Uh, But Amy has now taken over the reins and has done so very smoothly, very efficiently, and it is the same excellently run con as it's always been. And it had an excellent raffle. Uh, If you ever get along to the Concrete Cow, do buy some raffle tickets. Because, I mean, there's barely 100 people at the convention, and the selection of prizes in that raffle was pretty fantastic. I must say, we did have the Blasphemous Tome, issue one in there yeah um, the only copy that has gone into the hands of someone who wasn't a patreon backer as it was on the the raffle stall and yeah one lucky person did walk away with that and you, i think you said scott that he wasn't actually a listener yeah i hope he is now i'm sorry i didn't catch your name whoever you are but if you're listening now welcome aboard <laughs> and the raffle also raised a huge amount of money, uh, I think something like £370, uh, for the Alzheimer's Society, which is a, a charity that's very dear to my own heart. And uh, again, thank you very much to everyone who bought a raffle ticket and made that happen. And thank you to Tiffany uh, for selling cupcakes and going round and handing out all the raffle tickets and uh, you know, getting people fired up about it. So many cupcakes in our kitchen for a couple of days. So many cupcakes. It, it would be <laughs> ironic if, if the charity were diabetes-related. <laughs> <laughs> if you aren't beforehand, you are now. <laughs> and with reference to the tome, we've had some submissions for issue two. Yes, we've had a few submissions so far, uh, but there is still scope for plenty more. So if you've got any ideas for bits of artwork, you know, short articles, anything about four or five hundred words, maybe little snippets of flash fiction, again, the same kind of length, then please you know, send them to us. This is our fanzine that will be going out to backers around Christmas time. We should be coming out with issue two. But now, before we move into our discussion of Clark Ashen Smith and the Seven Gearses, it's time for our Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Yes, unspeakable. 
Because someone's been bending the rules slightly. This uh, this word of the week turns out to be triple-barrelled. Because it is Clark Ashton Smith. Mm. Well, to be fair, we do have some form for the Lovecraftian word of the week not being a single word, because we had non-Euclidean before. So what's the deal with Clark Ashton Smith? These three words. It's three words. <laughs> and Lovecraft referred to Clark Ashton Smith numerous times in his stories. In different fashions. Yes. Well, he refers to him explicitly using his real name three times in different stories, in The Call of Cthulhu, Pickman's Model, and uh, At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, and and also to this sorcerer uh, called Clark Ashton, uh, who appears in uh, The Whisper in Darkness. So Clark Ashton is spelt with a K and hyphen capital T-O-N, Clark Ashton. So it looks kind of archaic, but it's pretty clear who he's referring to. And I think this is something that Lovecraft particularly liked doing, wasn't it? That he liked mixing up fiction with fact. So he would refer to real books, such as The Golden Bough or The Malleus Maleficarum, alongside, you know, made-up ones like the Narcotic Manuscripts or you know, some of, or the Necronomicon, you know, best known, uh, some of which were books that he had made up, some of which were real books, and some of which were books that his friends, uh, other authors, had made up. And there probably wasn't an author who he borrowed more from than Clark Ashton Smith, though we'll get into that in a moment. But before we do that, let's find out how exactly Lovecraft invoked the name of Clark Ashton Smith. From The Call of Cthulhu. He will, I believe, sometime be heard from as one of the great decadents. For he has crystallised in clay and will one day mirror in marble those nightmares and fantasies which Arthur Macken evokes in prose. And Clark Ashton Smith makes visible in verse and in painting. And from Pickman's model... There was none of the exotic technique you see in Sydney Syme, none of those trans-Saturnian landscapes and lunar fungi that Clark Ashton Smith uses to freeze the blood. And finally, from the Whisper in Darkness. They've been inside the earth, too. There are openings which human beings know nothing of, some of them in these very Vermont hills, and great worlds of unknown life down there. Blue-litten Kinyan... Red-litten Yoth, and black, lightless Nakai. It's from Nakai that frightful Sathogua came, you know, the amorphous toad-like god-creature mentioned in the Narcotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon, and the Camorium myth-cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Clark Ashton. And now on to our main topic, Clark Ashton Smith. And this is what Ray Bradbury had to say about Clark Ashton Smith. Smith always seemed, to me anyway, a special writer for special tastes. His fame was lonely. Whether or not it will ever be more than lonely, I cannot say. Every writer is special in some way, and those who are more than ordinarily special are either damned or just lost along the way. Smith was a true Renaissance man. He dabbled in well no sorry dabbled is unfair he uh, mastered a number of artistic disciplines uh, and was a varied and successful and self-taught artist and writer and poet throughout his his fairly long life 
these days he is probably best remembered for as a weird tale writer and for his involvement with with Lovecraft's uh, literary circle for his friendship you know the, the, the big three weird tales writers of course were Lovecraft Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E Howard and they were close friends correspondents and in fact it was Lovecraft who even drew Smith into writing weird fiction in the first place because Lovecraft had been a fan of uh, Smith's poetry and had uh, admired some of the artworks he's, he'd produced uh, and convinced uh, Smith to submit some of his poetry to Weird Tales, which didn't actually publish poetry. But they started publishing poetry explicitly because of Smith. From there, Smith was moved to try writing uh, these these short Weird Tales and ended up writing over 100 of them over the course of about a 10-year period and then stopped. I mean, he had been quite active before he got involved with Weird Tales anyway. Um, he actually went back to his um, his teenage years because he was originally inspired a lot by the Arabian Nights. Um, he liked fantasy and the exotic more so than the horror. Um, and he was encouraged by a columnist and self-progressed San Francisco bohemian, um, George Sterling, to publish his works in poetry beforehand. I think he was only 19 when The Star Trader and Other Poems was published in 1912. He wrote volumes of poetry, and this is how he came, of course, later to Lovecraft's attention. But even he received praise from the likes of Arthur Macken, and he, he was really lauded as a child prodigy for his poetry in the, at such a young age. Yeah. Macken reviewed the collection of poetry and quoted, It shows many of his verses a great admiration for the grand manner of which he builds up poems as if they were cathedrals. But it was... As you say, Lovecraft helped develop his movement into weird fiction. Well, into, into prose, because he'd, he'd been pretty well exclusively a poet up to that stage. And this was his move into prose, which, I mean, was fairly short-lived but intense. Even then, you know, his, his prose was very poetic. There are florid descriptions throughout his work. And a lot of his work is... It, you could pretty much call it prose poetry... They are very much, you know, style over substance. There is quite often the kernel of a weird idea, lots of weird details and so on, but what makes the story sing is the description. As I mentioned before, he wrote over about a ten-year period, uh, and he stopped around 1935. Uh, he didn't die until 1961, but uh, during the last years of his life, he didn't really write anything other than poetry. Uh, but on the other hand, that was the stage of his life at which he moved very much full-time into the visual arts, becoming a painter and sculptor you know, predominantly over everything else. Mm -hmm. yeah. In 1937, in fact, he wrote to an illustrator, Virgil Finlay, and he admitted, quote, uh, as for my writing, circumstances have made me very unproductive during the past two years. My mother's illness and death, my father's growing fe feebleness, and our virtual isolation with everything devolving around me are chiefly responsible for my lapse from the pages of WT. Well, weird tales. And uh, that was also around the same time as first Robert E. Howard and then Lovecraft died. Mm. I mean, Howard died in 36, uh, and Lovecraft died in 37. So, you know, if if a lot of his impetus had come from Lovecraft, particularly, uh, who had you know, obviously drawn him into weird tales in the first place, then you know, maybe without his two close friends there, there wasn't quite the same drive to do so. There's also a financial consideration as well, because um, Smith had, as a child, had quite a debilitating illness. It was rumoured to be scarlet fever at the time, um, where he ultimately led to him being homeschooled because his main education pretty much stopped after that and he was taught at home incidentally, in a cabin in Northern California that his father had built. 
stone with uh, very much almost reminiscent to a degree of the description given for the um, the hut in Seven Gearses. There was a, there was an element of that that kind of resonated with me after having read the afterword in a. Um, the great collection, actually, if anyone gets a chance to uh, find it, the Fantasy Masterworks put out by Galanz. Um, the Emperor of Dreams has a great um, afterword by Stephen Jones, which makes the bibliophile in me really uh, really weep, thinking, there were so many limited and collected editions of his work, how am I going to track them all down now? <laughs> but, but no, um, he lived very much in isolation in this valley with a, um, in a cabin that his father had built. Um, his father was of English descent. His uh, his mother was a local to that roughly that area. Um, but after they passed after they passed away, he had to sell much of the land or bar two acres of the valley to pay for the funeral expenses, and he was honestly in really dire straits. As a result of being in such dire financial straits, he had to take up various menial jobs, including well digger, fruit picker and packer, wood chopper, typist, cement mixer, gardener, hard rock miner mucker, windlasser, anything he could do to potentially get money in. And after his creative lapse, in, in terms of at least writing, that is, he found taking lots of just rocks, um, mostly soft stone that he found in the valley, or, or wood, he would carve and whittle away. He found he was having more income selling those and some of his illustrations than he was ever from writing, um, to the point where sometimes he was earning up to $65 a month. So he just went, oh, it's it's paying the bills. Sod it, I'll do this instead. Yeah, because I, I saw the figure mentioned that he was earning one cent a word from Weird Tales. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, it wouldn't take much to outstrip that. Yeah, and even then, some of the volumes, especially later when Arkham House were producing a lot of his, um, lot of his books, Derleth wasn't exactly financially minded in terms of some of the prices he put on the books did not lead to a particularly good margin on sale. He learnt a little bit later on, but that wasn't too helpful to um, to Smith at that point, as it was really getting towards the end of his life. But yeah, le- leading on from that, it did um, having a look into his later life make me realise how much a almost a tragedy the poor man's life was after he stopped writing. That because he had so li- um, little money left, um, he had a quite late marriage um, in life, where he eventually moved out of his house because he hated living near Alban pretty much all of his life for for one reason or another. Maybe too much of a connection to the past, I don't, I don't know. But most of his original manuscripts, um, some carbon copies have been saved from when he sent them in for um, when he sent them in to various publishers for them to be for them to be printed. But the originals he kept in the cabin along with a lot of his um, sculptures. Over the course of between when he moved out of the cabin and moved in with his um, his wife to be, then they were slowly moving stuff out from there and bringing it to their new home. Vandals had gone in. Smashed up the house. Um, there were bullet holes found in there where they'd basically been using it to shoot the place up. Um, there'd been various papers that had been ripped and trashed and ultimately culminated in the cabin being burnt down. Most of his original manuscripts, um, apart from his leather-backed or leather-bound journal, which was later reproduced by Arkham House, um, that's about the only major piece of his original manuscripts that survived. Mm. The rest of it is lost. Oh, that's really sad. Um, so the leather-bound journal, was that... That was like a, a diary type journal, or um, it, the Black Book, as it was later called by oh, Arkham yes. House. Yeah, um, the Black Book of Clark Ashton Smith was a leather-bound notebook that he kept and just wrote down story ideas and jotted down um, memories and so on. Um, and he kept this for decades. Yeah, it was like um, Lovecraft's commonplace book. Yes, exactly. Mm. In fact, yeah, I remember it was being printed uh, in the um, in the nineteen eighties, and I've I've actually got a copy as a result. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think Arkham House originally did a paperback version with a uh, with a faux leatherette cover to try and make it as close enough to the original black book as it was. That's the version I've got. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. But no, he he really went into a spiral, um, almost like downward depression, and didn't really have any burst of creative energy left until almost just before his death when he submitted another short story for publication, only to then die and the rejection letter turn up a little while afterwards. Um, Because during the vandalism of the cabin they upturned all the, the two urns containing the ashes of his, of his mother and father and that really had a big big effect on him hmm. on a happier note his journals also play a role in one of my uh, favorite horror novels which is our lady of darkness by fritz lieber uh, which draws a bit upon them and, and you know clark ashton smith as a character I think Does he, he yell at some point i've got a little black book with my poems in <laughs> <laughs> he really should do As I mentioned earlier, there's probably no other writer contemporary with Lovecraft whose work had as much immediate influence on the development of the mythos. Mm -hmm. Lovecraft borrowed so many elements from uh, from Smith, and yeah, it was a two-way process. For example, Sarthogua, the Book of Ibon, and so on, all come from uh, Clark Ashton Smith in the first Mm -hmm. place. I think Smith's one of Smith's quote was that he took as much as he used from the mythos. Now, a look at some of Clark Ashton Smith's story cycles. The majority of Clark Ashton Smith's weird fiction falls into three particular story cycles. The Hyperborean cycle, Zothique, and Avawan, or however you pronounce it. Yeah, Hyperborea is probably the one that most Lovecraft fans would be familiar with, because it's where most of the, the elements that got reincorporated into Lovecraft's fiction came from in the first place. So elements like Sarthogia and Ibon. The one thing that always gets me, even though, say, it's incorporated into Lovecraft, even me for a long while got this confused with Hyboria, not Hyperborea. Two very different things, two very different writers. Yes, yeah, that was that was Robert E. Howard. And, yeah, I mean, it does take its root from the same word. Um, and, you know, he was certainly inspired by a lot of the same legends of a, a land in the frozen north. But, yeah, yeah, very, very different worlds. Yeah, this one is 100% less Conan. <laughs> yes, yeah, still sword and sorcery, but of a different type. Mm-hmm. Like Zothique, which we'll get into in a moment, this is a world in peril. Uh, Zothique is is much more of a dying Earth setting, but this is also you know, a continent on the brink of apocalypse, of annihilation. Not many of the stories go into that. They're, they're, in some of the later ones, there is that sense of impending doom, which dominates uh, the, the Zothique cycle. It would appear that Smith was somewhat influenced by the philosophy of theosophy. This was brought to us by Madame Helena Blavatsky in the late 19th century. In a letter to Lovecraft, Smith writes, Theosophy, as far as I can gather, is a version of esoteric yoga prepared for Western consumption. So I dare say its legendary must have some sort of basis in Oriental records. One can disregard the theosophy and make good use of the stuff about elder continents, etc. I got my own ideas about Hyperborea, Poseidonis, etc. from such sources and turned my imagination loose. So within theosophy, there's this idea of root races, of races that have 
died out or in some cases are still with us in some manifestations and of races to come in the future i think we're listed as the fifth race it might be the fourth one but preceding us there are the races such as the atlanteans and the hyperboreans and so on and that we've got a, a spiritual or biological destiny towards this this kind of higher race I mean, this has been taken up in all sorts of directions by eugenics and Nazi Germany and so on. But a lot of people were inspired by this in the early 19th century, including a lot of the abstract artists like Kandinsky and so on. This plays a part in Smith's work as well. Well, particularly the idea of these lost worlds and lost continents. He specifically used two that are name-checked by, by theosophy, you know, Hyperborea and Poseidonis. I will go into Hyperborea in particular in the next episode when we look at his uh, one of the stories of his that's that's set in Hyperborea. But we'll give an overview of his other story cycles now. Moving on to Averroin. This is very different from Smith's other work. Uh, it's a cycle of stories that is set in uh, a fictional province to the south of medieval France. And... While a lot of Smith's work is, you know, sort of very rich in invented material, all this, you know, fantastical stuff that came out of his own imagination, the other one stories are are much more rooted in mythology, and they involve things like ghosts and vampires and werewolves and witches and satyrs and uh, and so on. And, you know, they, they feel much more like, I guess, a combination of, you know, folklore, fairy tales, traditional horror stories. Yeah, a, a very different feel from his other work. And if we get collections of his stories, are these kind of all intermingled, these stories from like Averroin and uh, Hyperborea and so on? Or are they in separate collections? Or it Depends on which collections you end up picking. Fair um, enough. There's yeah. three main collections that I can think of. There was a set of books done by Panther in the 70s. Um, They were divided up not so much into story cycles, but ones that were connected by general theme. You know, things like Other Worlds, Other Times, um, and then Genius Loci. There's a couple that kind of stood alone on themselves, but I remember those being two two two-volume sets. You then had an incomplete set that were done by Ballantine Adult Fantasy. They did split them up into the individual story cycles. They did a book on Hyperborea. They did a book on Zathique, Poseidonis... And Zikarf. And Zikarf, yeah. Uh, the Averroin one was announced but was never completed by Lynn Carter. It kind of makes sense to theme them that way. And are, are most of these stories, I've not read many of these these particular ones, are these stories, you know, pretty short as well? Because when yes. we talked about um, the Seven Geasses, that's not a very long story. I th- uh, but that, that was quite long for uh, for one of Smith's stories. I mean, a lot of his... Uh, he's, he wrote a fair few which are barely more than vignettes, really. Um, this, this is why I like him. Nice, easy, short, digestible chunks that I don't fall asleep in the middle of. <laughs> uh, yeah, he didn't really write epics. He wrote these you know, sort of intense, almost prose poems about, um, you know, that, that were rich in, you know, in imagery and description, but in which not necessarily a whole hell of a lot happened. Well, I remember he did have a grounding in poetry anyway. Mm, absolutely, and it shows in his fiction. <laughs> I remember actually there was one critic who mentioned, I think it was on the release of The Mother of uh, Mother of Toads, that they much preferred his style when he was writing about Averroin because it was a lot more colourful, it was a lot more... Um, generally was better received. So there, there is quite a different sh- uh, shift in tone between his cycles. In fact, there's a nice little quotation from The Maker of Gargoyles, which was, the uh, I think, the first of the Averroin uh, stories. At that time, the year of our Lord, 1138... 
Vion was the principal town in the province of Avawan. On two sides the great shadow-haunted forest, a place of equivocal legends, of loop gurus and phantoms, approached to the very walls and flung its umbrage upon them at early forenoon and evening. On the other sides there lay cultivated fields and gentle streams that meandered among willows or poplars, and roads that ran through an open plain to the high chateau of noble lords and to regions beyond Avawan. And now let's move into the far future with Zothique. Yeah, my favourite of his cycles, to be honest. Yeah, this is the, the dark, gloomy, miserable setting. This is humanity at the end of its days, the last continent on Earth on this dying world. Otherwise, my happy place. <laughs> it's, it's about decadence. It's about uh, you know, the approach of impending death. It's about you know, humanity returning to this new dark age of superstition and sorcery and magic. And more necromancers than you can shake a stick at. Yeah, about the return of old gods from beyond the stars or beneath the earth. If I had to pick out one particular story, I mean, it started with the Empire of the Necromancers, which sets a, a great tone right from the start, about these two wandering sorcerers that start to form this huge Empire of the Dead that they surround themselves with, and of course everything goes horribly wrong, as it, as it does in most of Smith's stories. If I had to recommend one story, it would be The Charnel God. This has had quite an influence on um, on the gaming side of things that we would look at, because I know that Paul's run the campaign that that story pretty much features in it, in its entirety. Yeah, I think we can name that one without being too much of a spoiler with uh, Realm of Shadows. <laughs> that goes into quite a lot of detail into Zothique, and it, it kind of takes it as perhaps away from the way Clark Ashton Smith described it and sort of sets it as a kind of alternate kind of dreamland setting. Yeah, and I think the, one of the op other options is that it's almost an echo of the future that's resounding backwards through time so that you could potentially run Zathik if you wanted it as a far future setting, but their kind of default is it's just a realm in the dreamlands. But again, I think that there's a lot of parallels you could put there because there's definitely a, a commonality in tone between some of the dreamland stories and the stories you find in Zathik. They almost have this kind of Arabian Night feel to it in places. And a quote from Smith's Zothik cycle from The Empire of the Necromancers. Before the time of its telling, many epochs shall have passed away, and the seas shall have fallen in their beds, and the new continents shall have come to birth. Perhaps in that day it will serve to beguile for a little the black weariness of a dying race, grown hopeless of all but oblivion. I tell the tale as men shall tell it in Zothique, the last continent, beneath a dim sun and sad heavens where the stars come out in terrible brightness before eventide. I love that, that phrase, sad heavens, under <laughs> sad heavens. Yeah, it, it's just got a certain ring to it. Yeah, I think whenever there are stories that tell the kind of a, the fall of, of mankind and civilization, it's a last continent. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. And finally, we move on to the small cycles. I mean, with, with most of these, we're talking about, you know, two or three stories. Uh, he wrote some stories set on Mars, uh, but the Mars that Smith wrote about 
you know, is this isn't science fiction. This is science fantasy. This is a sort of rich, invented, fantastical Mars. No John Carter here. No, but I mean, even that was science fantasy and kind of rich, invented, fantastical stuff. But this is of a different type. I mean, this feels like a Smith story just set on Mars. He also wrote, as we mentioned before, about Poseidonis, which was this last remnant of Atlantis. Uh, and, yeah, wrote, again, just a handful of stories around there. A lot of Linkata's writing on the subject for the Poseidonis collection did say it was quite a fragmentary collection at best. Yes. And then we move on to Zikarf. This is probably Smith's weirdest work, and it's, it's a shame there are only two Zikarf stories, because, I mean, everything else that Smith did was sort of... I mean, with the possible exception of the Mars stuff, was based, or at least inspired a little bit by human myths, uh, you know, by these tales of lost continents. So, I mean, Zothique was a sort of step beyond that. But then Zikarf was, you know, this entire alien world of Smith's inventions, far distant from humanity, having nothing really to do with us, and a chance for him really to let his imagination run wild. And he wrote these these stories towards the end of his writing career, but sadly there are only two of them. And it's worth reminding people that if you want to read these stories, they're available on the Eldritch Dark website. Yeah. Not only do they have uh, Smith's fiction on there, but they've got a lot of essays about uh, his work, about his life, bits of, of criticism, reviews, and it's just an all-round fantastic resource for Smith fans. Especially as pretty much all of his material, save outside of the Nightshade Books collections, is very hard to find these days. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's all actually in copyright, so I, I don't know what kind of deal they have to put it on that website, but it's just fantastic. And now we discuss Clark Ashton Smith's contributions to the wider Cthulhu mythos. So it would seem that many of the things that Clark Ashton Smith created have been adopted into the wider Cthulhu mythos, sometimes by H.P. Lovecraft and sometimes by other authors such as Sathogwa, for example. Yeah, Lovecraft certainly started this. I mean, there was mutual admiration between Lovecraft and Smith, and they borrowed elements from each other's work. I mean, you know, it's some, in some Smith stories, you'll find references to, say, the Necronomicon. Um, but Lovecraft, you know, freely borrowed elements like, you know, Ibon, like uh, Sathogwa. This continued after Smith's uh, death, when writers like August Ehrlich uh, took a lot of the stuff that he wrote for perhaps other cycles that uh, you know, Smith never really saw as being related to the Cthulhu mythos, uh, and, and made some of the gods and entities and, and other elements that he created you know, part of the mythos canon. I think I perceive this as being largely for their mutual enjoyment mm. that they corresponded with each other the various authors and by being able to reference each other's work and kind of build on each other's work i it's my understanding that, that was more of a kind of a nod and a wink and oh i've looked i've used your creation here and that book you mentioned i've used it here I'm not sure that the aim was to create some broader mythos or some sort of coherent background. I think, as I said, I think it's largely motivated by their mutual enjoyment. 
Absolutely. But, you know, obviously, you know, we as gamers have come along. We've taken all the source material thought, you know, how can we use it in a game, and turned it into something far more complex and rooted in, in canon than I, I think you know, these writers ever intended. It does feel sometimes that the gaming world is taking all these things that these authors have created and that we've, you know, we've got our, our hammers and we're just trying to bang all these different shaped pegs into the, <laughs> the one board of the Cthulhu mythos. And some of them don't really fit that well, but, you know, we, we don't give up. We just smash them into the holes regardless. So we, everything becomes a, a kind of cohesive whole. Yeah, you just need a bigger hammer ball. That's, yeah. yeah. You, tr- you try to look for any tenuous commonality between any of the stories. Yeah. <laughs> Give a mythos fan a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of that actually fairly recently because I was trying to peg how the Treasure of the Dust, Quachelo Tas, fits into the wider mythos. And you have to do a bit of It's almost like playing the bacon game. It's uh, going, how do you get from Paul Bacon to Julie Andrews or something in so many steps of common Paul, un- Paul, films that they've Paul, played in? Paul Bacon. Is he Kevin Bacon's brother? No, I work with him. Shit. <laughs> you, you, work with, you work with Kevin Bacon? No, can, no, you, can you get his autograph for me? Matt, Matt He's great plays guy. some very odd games, is all I can say. I've never come across this game, but okay. No, 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 you, you've never come across the Bacon the game? Paul Bacon the, game. The, seven, seven, it's the, it's the seven degrees Bacon of Paul Bacon. Okay. The Kevin Bacon one is better. Right. Um, you, you, you start with a film. Well, uh-huh. you, um, you start with an actress. Right. You say, how do you get from them, or an actress or actor, how do you get from them to Kevin Bacon in seven, step, seven steps okay, or less. And right, you work right. with, say, this person worked with such and such on this film, who worked with such and such on another film, who starred with such and such, who also starred with Kevin Bacon in blah. I would be hopeless at this game, but I get the point. You okay, know, Movie buff like me loves this game. Yes. <laughs> but, but you play it on hard mode by using Paul Bacon. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to ask him if he's been in any films recently. But no, I was thinking about Quachilla Tass, mm. um, the different steps you'd have to take to get that god, which appears in quite a standalone story. How you then get to that being um, another part of the mythos? Yes, that it features a book called the Testament of Car- um, Carnamagus. That is referenced in the introduction to Zethra, the Zethique story, because Zethra is part of Zethique, and Zethique includes the Charnel God setting, which references Mordigian and Ghouls. Then it becomes part of the mythos. <laughs> yeah. have, have you th- ever thought about a career in theology, Matt? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that to my uncle. He's the reverend in the family. Have you heard the good news? Cthulhu's coming back. As if he ever went away. But as we touched on earlier, a lot of the time when, say, Lovecraft used elements from Clark Ashton Smith, like Sarthogua, it wasn't like he went off and wrote a story about Sarthogua or anything like that. You know, it was just sort of, you know, here's a list of names and evocative, you know, images and stuff like that. And, oh, coincidentally, I'll mention Sarthogua in here. And it's just a throwaway reference. But then Uh, one could say the same thing about Shabnigarath. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not yeah. like Lovecraft went away and thought, oh, I'll write a, sh- a story about Shubnigarath and explain what this uh, being or whatever it is is all about. No, I'll just throw in a few, yeah, Shubnigaraths here and there, <laughs> and suddenly it's a thing. Yeah. But it's just the fact that, you know, we, we as gamers and game writers, worst of all, then go and find all these little references and so on and codify them so much that unless you go back to the source material, and remind yourself of, of you know, how tenuous a lot of these things are, it's really easy to forget how much of this that has been created or solidified by the gaming world. 
Let's just take a quick look at some of the entities and things that Clark Ashton Smith gave us that we've adopted into our gaming. And where would we be without Ibon and the Book of Ibon? Mm. It'd, make the it'd make the lyrics in Bikey Bikey a bit difficult. <laughs> so this Hyperborean wizard, we get reference to him and, uh, and his book. And, you know, that's become maybe Ibon less so, but the, the Book of Ibon has become like a core mythos tome alongside the the necronomicon yeah i mean it turns up in an awful lot of call of cthulhu scenarios um certainly i've made great use of it in the couple and i i, I find it just this idea that there is this the, this mythos tome written by human hands but from a civilization that no one even remembers you know in a time when you know wizards were just you know almost at one with the gods it's just yeah i, I find it incredibly evocative and of course, there's Sarthogua. Now, Sarthogua is is a really odd one because there is nothing about him that really kind of puts your mind with the eldritch, otherworldly nastiness and weirdness of the Lovecraftian gods. He's described as being a bit like a bat, a bit like a toad. Uh, He's furry. Yeah, yeah, sleepy. Uh, he just sits there. His eyes glow a bit, and he just sort of sits there in the dark. You know, every now and then people bring him sacrifices. He belches, and then, you know, he just goes back to sleep. He's the mythos equivalent of Mr. Creosote. <laughs> <laughs> what about Atlat Natcha? It's a giant spider. What more do you need, really? I mean, that's that's pretty creepy. <laughs> Shelob in the Mythos world. Yeah, again, a kind of an odd fit for the larger, you know, the larger approach that Lovecraft took to his gods and other Mythos writers, you know, have taken. Yeah, you know, going back to what you were saying before about hammering those those wrong pegs into the round holes. That, that Atlatch Nature, I think possibly even more than Sarthokua, is just a really weird one. The way that he's written, and, and I say he uh, advisedly, is written in the story in which he first appears. There is, there is nothing about him that screams mythosteity. I'd be interested to learn, if, if any listeners out here, please comment on the, on the site, if anyone knows where the transition took place, where A, it became a he to a she, but also where the idea of the gulf in the area underneath Mount Vomithadreth, where Aklak Nachau is supposed to be weaving its eternal web, where that suddenly became a, a metaphor for the gate, uh, the kind of barrier between here and the, dream, the waking world and the dreamlands. Because that certainly isn't directly stated anywhere in the story. So that must be something that came afterwards, and I'm guessing probably through gaming. I mean, I think we could take any of these things and talk about them at some length. Whilst they started off small, they've kind of developed through other people's writings, and then they developed into gaming. And what we see with Atlat Nacha now is a, a female deity that exists in the dreamlands, quite different to how Clark Ashton Smith originally portrayed the creation. And to be fair, that's happened to a lot of things that Lovecraft created. I mean, you know, as you mentioned before, the classic being Shubnikarath, which was nothing more than a name and an evocative moniker. But with Smith, it really seems to have happened all over the place. Maybe it's because you know his his entities and his gods were you know originally so poorly suited to the mythos. Maybe it's because some of them are you know relatively poorly defined. But yeah, you know, these seem to have accreted kind of gaming details more than may I say anything out of Lovecraft. A few other names that some might recognise that Smith bought us include the Vormis, the diminutive uh, race of kind of humanoid creatures. Uh, we have Aboth, 
the source of all uncleanliness, another deity. God of gamer folk everywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this one, but then that's not unusual. Rilim Shakehorth? Close enough. Mm-hmm. You say anything about him, Matt? Um, I vaguely remember the description, at least the image in the six said Call of Cthulhu rulebook, where it effectively looked like a like, six-legged thing with an aardvark-type snout. That's about it. There you go. Ubo Sathra. In with the large tablets underneath the south um, south pole. Yaoundé. No fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> We've done our research on this one, folks. And we're, we're professionals, damn it. <laughs> and and Quachil Utas, which uh, you just discussed. Yes, the treader in the dust. Yeah. There's also uh, one that we did miss from the list. Ah. One of my, my favourite of all of them. We'll dig in. Ah, of course. But to reiterate something I said before, I really recommend, if you're planning on using any of these Clark Ashton Smith creations, go back to the stories in which they appear. Don't just go by, you know, the, the write-ups in the Call of, Call of Cthulhu core book or the Malleus Monstorum, which will give you, you know, one particular snapshot of what that creature or deity is supposed to be. But if you go back to the source material, you will be surprised at how different you know, these things were in the beginning. And I think... Going back to the theme that we keep repeating uh, in in this podcast, the idea of surprising your players, of of moving away from you know, established canon, perversely in this case, by going back to the source of the canon, you can you know, undermine these expectations nicely. Yeah, especially I think with that Latna Chara, especially when you start describing it as a he, you'll have someone at the table go, isn't it supposed to be a she? In which case, you hit them with a copy of, of uh, The Seven Gears and move on. <laughs> yeah. Once you've hit them seven times, they fall off cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and now let's take a quick look at Clark Ashton Smith and his work in the visual arts. So Clark Ashton Smith had no formal education in art, but it was obviously something which he was very keen on and pursued nevertheless. He did a series of paintings and drawings. He seemed to focus on painting during the first half uh, of his life and then move on to sculpture and rock carving in the, in the latter period. Many of his drawings and sculptures, again, can be seen on that same website we referenced earlier, the Eldritch Dark. The paintings and drawings, many of them, it's not quite clear to me on the dates of them, but many of them seem quite... Um, primitive and naive in their in their rendering his, his, but his skills clearly develop and there's a couple of pieces um, which, are, which are just called Untitled Watercolours from 1926 which they're really nice um, you know he's obviously got a lot of talent when it comes to rendering faces and figures that doesn't seem to be his strength but those, those kind of um, uh, kind of like wind-blasted heaths and sort of twisted trees in the landscapes. They're just black and white renderings on the website. I'm not sure if they were black and white or if you know if they were originally in colour. Uh, but some really nice pieces there. Yeah, his strength seems to be imagination rather than depiction. That a lot of the stuff that he, you know, these landscapes in particular that you mentioned depict, you know, alien places, alien creatures, alien plant life, and while they're not perhaps that skillfully executed, they do end up still being very evocative and, you know, in some cases transcending the limitations of, of his actual ability or, or, or his skill. 
His uncle owned a copper mine and he would uh, go along there and pick up lumps of talc and other soft stones, take them home and carve them. Uh, and these look very much like this kind of um, uh, soapstone carvings that I've seen from Africa and so on. They've kind of got a sort of totemic kind of look, kind of quite rounded. And they uh, have titles such as Sathogua and Venusian Swamp Man and things like that. And they look like they'd be awesome props in a game. Mm, um, in fact, much. you got one out, not not one of these, Matt, but you, you got a, a, a soapstone figure out for one of your games. Oh, um, the uh, Kwatlaku statue. Yes, yeah. yeah, which was a really good prop. Um, so um, they'd, they'd be pretty cool for that. But clearly, you know, he had, he developed quite a bit of artistic skill and he was down to get a grant. Is that right, Scott? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure of the details. I read this in passing when I was reading a lot of articles about him. But yeah, he was offered a uh, a sponsorship by the Guggenheim Foundation, which he actually ended up turning down because uh, apparently he wanted to be self-sufficient and didn't want to take their money, which... If if only he had a dictionary to understand the meaning of the word grant. (laughs) And there was to be a book, Cthulhu and Others in Stone, which was unfortunately incomplete at the end of his life. So there was certainly a lot of overlap between his written work and the written work of Lovecraft as well, and the artworks he created. I, you mentioned you know, the, the uh, statues of Sarthogyo, for example, or the little idols. But uh, he also did ones inspired by Lovecraft's work as well, like uh, Cthulhu. He did a bust of Dagon. He did a bust of the Outsider as well, which was fantastic. And, you know, so much so that uh, photographs of some of his sculptures ended up being used for the second Arkham House collection, or at least the cover of the second Arkham House collection of Lovecraft's work, uh, Beyond the Wall of Sleep, published in 1943. Yeah, I think that was something that happened as well later with other Arkham House books, that they did turn towards um, using some of his sculptures as artwork. Um, in fact, I think I remember mentioning that Derleth collected quite a large collection of Ashton Smith's um, sculptures. About 50-odd in the end, I think. Going back to what you were saying a moment ago, Paul, though, about the sort of totemic nature of these, there was a lovely little snippet on the, the Eldritch Dark website which they'd found... They, they found an article, um, a newspaper article, uh, which was titled, Auburn Artist Poet Utilises Native Rock and Sculptures. And it, it's a very factual title, anyway. <laughs> it just had this lovely throwaway bit in there, which <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's sort of a mythos scenario seed in itself. When asked about the carving on his figure of the reptile man, he says that the idea just came to him. Experts who have examined some of these sculptures state that the hieroglyphics are an ancient language and are translatable. I call bullshit. <laughs> Those are the kind of experts that go for this off, I think was how you put it earlier, wasn't it? <laughs> yes. In this one instance, Scott, I fear we may have heard enough from experts. <laughs> The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. So we come to that part of the show where we say thank you to people who back the show via Patreon. Now, we very much appreciate your donations. They go towards our equipment and our hosting fees and various projects that we have in the pipeline. One of which, of course, is the Blasphemous Tome, which we're hoping to put out later this year, a fanzine. Number two. 
Number two, dedicated to all things Lovecraftian and uh, related to the podcast and so on. As we've already mentioned, we welcome your submissions to that. We're looking for articles of around, say, 500 words of whatever nature you wish to submit. And also, we're always on the lookout for good black and white illustration. So our first thanks goes out to Andy Young. Thank you very much, Andy. Indeed. Cheers, Andy. So thank you very much to Eugene Doherty. Indeed. Thank you very much, Eugene. Thank you very much, Eugene. And thank you to Louis or Louis Davenport. Apologies, we're not quite sure which pronunciation of your name to use, so we'll use both of them. Two for the price of one. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much, Louis or Louis. Yep. Thank you, Louis or Louis. I'm going. I'm, well, I won't. Let's not muddy the waters with my preferences which, or my whichever, guess. Whichever one you choose is your preference, Paul, that'll be the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> Story of my life. Indeed, some more thanks go out to Eric Top. Thank you very much, Eric. Yep. Cheers, Eric. Thank you Thank very much. Thank you very much, Eric. Cheers. One more bit of news. We've just released the first recording in the series we're calling Weird Whisperings. Scott has done a recording of the music of Eric Zahn by H.P. Lovecraft. This recording will be exclusive to our Patreon backers. If you are a backer, then please check your emails for details. But for now, here's a little taster. Certainly, Eric Zahn was a genius of wild power. As the weeks passed, the playing grew wilder, whilst the old musician acquired an increasing haggardness and furtiveness pitiful to behold. He now refused to admit me at any time, and shunned me whenever we met on the stairs. Then, one night, as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking viol swell into a chaotic babble of sound. Mystery attracts mystery. Weird Whisperings. And now it's time for... Ask Jackson. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, we are the earthly vessels of the spirits of Jackson Elias. He is always deep within us, like a, a, a half-digested dumpling or something, just bubbling away there with arcane knowledge. And sometimes this knowledge bubbles out of us uncontrollably, and we are compelled to share it with the world. It is generally safest if we do this in response to a question from one of our listeners, because otherwise we just end up sitting there on the bus, rambling away crazily to whoever will hear us. You know that makes us sound a bit of an information repository like Aboth? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, Matt. Yeah, this story is obviously having too much of an effect on you, Scott. But our letter this week comes from Tim Vert, who writes, Dear Jackson, I hear there is some great information to be had in these mythos tomes, but they can be kind of dense and hard-going. Can you recommend a favourite, or perhaps a good entry-level title? Now, I'm not one f uh, for usually advocating jumping into a series halfway through. If I'm the completest, I'd say you start a volume one in a series and you go right the way through. It's a bit like start picking up Lord of the Rings and going straight to The Return of the King. You, you just don't do it. However, Revelations of Glarky Volume 12 is a fantastic book because something <laughs> will definitely enter you when you read that. 
Oh god, we're back to members again, aren't we? I, I, he has orifices. It never makes. A, Do you want to expand on that, Matt? For, for you know, it's it's a great title, especially if you want to know anything about Yagolanak. Because for reading or speaking his name, thou shalt become open to possession by the god, with no head and orifices in his hands. So yeah, you'll definitely get to meet someone and have a good chat with him afterwards. If you're looking for, well, it depends on how you define entry. There. I, I was thinking you were going to direct people to uh, Baby's First Mythos books, Matt. Oh, of course, yeah. That's, yeah, uh, that, that's what I was waiting for. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, Seas for Cthulhu is a fantastic title if you want to have a go at that. Um, otherwise, any of the Littlest Lovecraft books, they're really good if you want to get the cultists early. So. I, do those actually contain spells, though? And if you wanted to truly master the art of sorcery, would that be a suitable book? And if so, is that really something you'd want to have in the hand of a toddler? May want to reevaluate that choice when it comes to giving it to a kid. Then, <laughs> and leaving aside uh, the obvious choice of things like evocation for dummies, another possibility may be to get, you know, for example, the Necronomicon on audiobook. If you're like me, I mean, sometimes you're going around the house doing a bit of housework, and you don't necessarily, you know, want to stop and read a book, and you know, you just listen to audiobooks instead. Now, of course, the danger with things like the audiobook of the Necronomicon is when it comes to the actual incantations, because having those read out on your iPhone or your iPod or whatever. It can lead to unexpected consequences. And usually a change of narrator halfway through. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, certainly, you know, th- those, those unintended spell castings are my excuse for why my house is in the state it is at the moment. Mm-hmm. And finally, let's wrap up with some thoughts on Clark Ashton Smith. Well, we are nominally supposed to be a gaming podcast, so let's concentrate on what we think we can take from Clark Ash and Smith to enrich our gaming, particularly Call of Cthulhu, but possibly any kind. Personally, I like that he's developed his own pantheon of gods, that there's almost a separate cycle away from the rest of the mythos, but touches in enough places that it's, like I said before, like by extension it's included as part of. Um, that just using those cycles themselves, I think uh, they're wonderful sets of gods, really evocative, really different as well. Like, I love Mordigi and Atlak Nachar as two individual examples. And I'd love to do a Zathik campaign, but it would be a lovely thing to do maybe at the, the local club and then hope that one day when it does become accessible that then it might go a bit further then. But no, I just think it's wonderfully rich and evocative settings. Well, I think the settings themselves, the entire story cycles are very rich fodder for gaming because they're so poorly defined in a lot of ways. Zothique is probably the best defined out of all of them, you know, to the extent where the Zothique collection actually includes a map. These are locations that are built up out of hints and names and inferences and, and little tales which are told in the stories and legends and so on. It's not like the classic thing with settings that puts me off as a gamer, which is sitting down and, you know, here's your 200 pages of homework. With this, I mean, you read these rich tales, you, know, you, you enjoy the poetry of the language. The language in particular will evoke all sorts of images and, and ideas in your head, just from the way Smith describes things. And at the end of it, you can walk away with ideas of you know, how to create your own scenarios here, how to set things in you know, Zothique or Hyperborea, that you know, may feel like Smith may go off in your own direction, but will certainly be enriched for the experience. Yeah, I think inspiration for 
your imagination is what I've kind of come to consider with Smith's stories. I've not read that many of them, but this has made me want to go back and, you know, do just that. I find Smith's stories on the whole are best experienced, you know, reading them one or two at a time, because, you know, some of them are very light on story. Uh, Some of them are, you know not much more than vignettes or prose poems. If you just sit down and read an entire collection over the course of a day or two, they do risk sort of blurring into each other. Actually, perhaps for that you know, point of view, unless you're specifically going out and, say, immersing yourself in Zethik to try to you know, create a Zethik campaign, the fact that you know, a lot of the collections mix and match between his different story cycles is probably actually a strength rather than a weakness, because it does help you know, sort of cleanse the palate between them. OK, well, that's all for this week about Clark Ashton Smith. But next time, we'll be looking at one of his stories, The Seven Geasses. And until then, it's goodnight from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous tomes. <laughs>